All right, and uh, welcome back, everyone, to the D&D podcast, Talking as a Free Action. I am joined here today by my co-host, Tayugetsu, which I definitely mispronounced. What up? Um, otherwise known as Marvin. And uh, we are also joined today by a uh, special guest, uh, Soto Kaiba. Welcome. Hello. All right, uh, so today uh, we were going to be taking questions from, from uh, John here. Uh, who's, uh, if I understand correctly, is uh, getting ready to run your first game as a dungeon master? Is that right? Well, it's more so like my second or third, but I, the problem is I don't have a group yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, group acquisition is definitely something that uh, I think a lot of people run into, although I find that once you're willing to do the dungeon mastering, it's usually not that hard to find people. Right. So... Uh, so yeah, that's kind of the agenda for today. So uh, hit us with it. What you got, man? So something that I've been kind of having trouble with was interesting combat encounters. I kind of notice when I give combat encounters, it seems like the players are bored. And I, I, I don't know, I just I try to make it difficult, but not too easy or not, not, too, not too difficult, you know, without making it grueling and then but i also don't want to make it too easy because that i mean i feel like that's just too too uh, not fun you know mm-hmm. so i don't know where the middle ground is to make it interesting so everyone can get a chance to really shine and be uh, a part of the fight okay um i mean i know that's that's something that i think a lot of people probably struggle with um and and I think part of it is trying to diagnose if combat is really the problem. Because if, if the issue is that the players don't seem interested, are they not interested because the players don't like combat? Or are they not interested because they don't, you know, they're, they're not really engaged with the story? Those are also possible symptoms. Um, right. Maybe not necessarily that the combat is is uninteresting or not fun. Like, it's totally possible the, um, it, it's totally possible that the player is maybe your your group just doesn't like combat all that much <laughs> which is definitely right. possible mm-hmm. uh what do you think and that's definitely it's hard no, um, no, good. what were you saying john no i was just saying that yeah, that's definitely a hard thing to find middle ground in when the group can uh prefer different you know subjects in D D, fighting um, diplomacy all that yeah yeah um and that is one thing that I like to hash out in the session zero, which we have all by now come to realize that I'm a huge fan of. Um, really? No idea. Yeah, who would have guessed? <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I think um, discussing what everybody hopes to gain out of the campaign and the kind of campaign that you're trying to play is uh, something you should definitely talk about in the session zero. And uh, if that doesn't line up, I think um, it might just not be a good fit for that player in your group. True. And don't flame me, but I've actually never done a session zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how do you do a session zero? I guess like what 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 do you do in a session zero? Um. Well, you know how when we used to play Duncan, D and D at Duncan. Mm-hmm. We would get together and then we would all build our characters and um, I would kind of go over 
the setting, the kind of things that we're trying to do there, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Okay. It's basically that, but usually you don't play afterwards. Okay. So kind of just like a planning day. Yeah, basically. Kind of. Okay. Uh, one thing you can do is you can role play like individual vignettes. So, you know, like it's not always appropriate, but sometimes uh, the player can get a better idea on kind of their character if you give them an opportunity to role play a little bit in character. Um, so that's something that you can also incorporate. Um, mm -hmm. Admittedly, not something that I do terribly frequently. Um, but if you run into a situation where the character is trying to work themselves through a backstory, perhaps you know quickly role playing an element of that backstory can help give them a little bit more of a, of a kind of a baseline for what their character might do in that situation, and thus maybe create a better back uh, a better character backstory. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely seems like I need to incorporate those more often. Um, or every time, actually. <laughs> I mean, I will say that it's not easy for newer DMs to incorporate a whole bunch of player backstory into a campaign. Uh, so maybe it's something you can work towards hmm. instead of uh, going full force, always include all backstories, maybe just a couple elements from one or two players at first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How yeah. do you guys feel about inc or incorporating like character arcs for the players in a campaign? Like, What are your guys' thoughts on that? So I think for me, part of it is you want to know what the player wants their character arc to be. Because one thing that I've that I've kind of learned in my own experience is that you can't force a player to have you can't force a player's character to have character growth unless that unless that player wants their character to. Um, some right. people are going to play a Goku, you know, type character who's just a static character throughout the entire thing, and that's valid. But if you know during that initial conversation of recruiting them to you know to play in your group, you can bring up that information. Hey, you know, is there some character arc that you might want to you know, you might want to explore as we're you know role playing this campaign together? You know, I'm anticipating it to go potentially you know to level six, level nine, uh, level twelve, and beyond. And the length of the campaign will also kind of inform what kind of character growth they're looking for. And then from there, you can kind of see, you can kind of use that to help mold their backstory to put them in a better starting place in order to get them into a good ending place. Gotcha. Um, so like, just anecdotally, um, in the current campaign that I'm running, uh, the one of the characters that uh, joined my campaign a little bit after the beginning was a cleric. Um, and their whole shtick was that they wanted to find out the mystery of their origin, and then from there they just wanted to get revenge on their father. And throughout the entire time, they fought tooth and nail with one of the other player characters. And my hope as a DM was that eventually they would just become like a Goku Vegeta type dynamic, where they're like frenemies. They, you know, don't like each other in character, but like at least have begrudging respect for one another. Just mm -hmm. never materialized. Every opportunity I gave the the two players to reconcile their differences in some meaningful way basically just turned into a pissing contest. So despite my attempts to want to to want to facilitate that, um, and even in some instances talking to the players directly, because the players are not capable of doing that or not interested in doing that necessarily, it just was never going to happen. And so that cleric marched right into his own destruction and eventually was vaporized. Um, Having, oh, you know, boy. not really, uh, it, it sounds a lot worse than it was, um, <laughs> having not really changed as a character. His character was exactly the same as it was when it started. And now we have to go save him. 
Oh. Yeah. I didn't I didn't know you're in the campaign, Marvin. Yeah. That's cool. Not for the initial part, but somehow he got roped into the saving. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um but yeah, no, that's all really good info. Um yeah, I, I don't know. I just I just feel like very inexperienced, so I always have lots of questions. Um I do kind of uh try to be the pillar for my player group when we're playing to try to have like as much knowledge as i can about the game because a lot of the people i played with it might be like their first campaign ever like as a playing mm -hmm. D, you know so i know i i know i i don't know everything about D. &D. um so i try i'm just trying my best you know to, i, I want to make sure they have fun i guess it's um... like my concern <laughs> From from personal experience, and I am pretty sure Owen can back me up here. Uh, you don't have to know everything. You don't even have to know most things. You really just have to know the basics, and uh, make rulings as you go. And if you make a ruling in the middle of the game and it turns out to be wrong, you can't argue about it then. You just got to keep it moving and then change it later. Yeah, gotcha. a thousand percent. Like you're not going to know most of the rules and what's more important to to the game in my opinion is just kind of keeping it moving and you don't want to spend too much time looking it up i think a really good precedent to set early on is if you don't know a rule for something just say hey i'm not sure we're going to do this in this situation i'll check out later I'll, I'll look it up later and most of the time it's fine um you know you could have a situation that you just couldn't foresee right let's say a character falls into lava do you know how much damage lava does off the top of your head Probably not, no. right? But you don't want to instantly vaporize the character. That's not fun. So you make an arbitrary decision. I don't know, like 8d10, sure, right? And you roll the dice, and that's just what you go with. And you can look it up later, or it just might not matter all that much. You just figure it out. Um, so for yeah. me, at least, it's like you just don't get hung up on the rules. It's more important to kind of keep the game flowing. Okay. That's good advice. Um. Yeah, definitely. I need to start doing that. Just to gotta. I was thinking just for fun on the side too, but also for D and was thinking of taking improv classes. Um, just because I like the idea of doing that, doing it. Um, but I also thought it could help in D and D ish too. You know, I don't know oh, if you guys agree. Can. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, in high school, when uh, <clears throat> when I took improv, introduction to improv, um. I noticed that my, my role-playing got infinitely better afterwards, after I learned how to start thinking on my feet in character. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if you want to take the class, I 100% support it, and if you think it'll help you with D&D, &D, I promise you it will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I've definitely heard that advice before, and while I've never personally taken an improv class, I think it teaches you a lot of good etiquette, that does carry over to the table that the that as dm you can then shepherd at that table um one thing i've i've seen that that just makes me cringe every time i see it is when a player you know when someone tells a player that their character wouldn't do that you know um i oh, think heck no. oh. i think alignment conversations are particularly you know like prone to this sort of thing but you know it's like oh your character wouldn't do that they're lawful good or you know well i, I don't I, I don't think that your character would do that or one of the worst things that you can do is someone says, I walk up to this conversation and then I say, no, you don't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, no, you don't. I'm standing alone. I want to be, al and it's like, 
improv teaches you a lot of that etiquette where you get to say, you know, oh, no, um, you don't get to dictate what other people do. If someone says that their character does something, it's up to you to then respond with your character's actions. So if right. the three of us are role-playing and let's say my character wants to talk to Marvin's character in private, but your character walks up and chimes in, it's not me, my responsibility to say, oh no, Sodokai, but your, your character doesn't do that. Instead, I should, I should then respond in character, hey, um, I, we'll, we'll continue this conversation later and then change the subject or however else my character might respond, right? Maybe I would just respond by saying, you know, uh, you should see yourself out. I'm a... Uh, I'm kind of talking in private here. <laughs> and, and, you know, maybe your character would be respect, uh, respectful of that. Or maybe you're like, okay, cool. Uh, no problem. I'll, I'll step away. And then tell the DM that you're going to go hide nearby with an earshot. Because you really want to know what's being said. Um, I see. So it's just about, um, about etiquette. And I think that sometimes new players don't. Particularly new players who want to treat D&D like a video game and not uh, the collaborative role-playing experience that it is. Um, You'll see that a lot with those particular players, where they want to be involved with everything. <laughs> Speaking about players, I know when I was first DMing, one issue I had was the type of player that was the min-max type. It was very, very hard. Like This, this is an example I remember when I was DMing that session. It was the first session, and the player... Uh, asked where the stores were. I explained the city, explained where the shops and all that were. As soon as he walked into the shop, he immediately asked for specific, uh, like, uh, I think it was like treasure items or legendary items from the handbook by name. And I was just like, I don't, I don't think a shop would have these items or I don't, how do you, how does your character know about these? I was like kind of asked, talking to him about it after the session because he was just like he he basically pulled out the handbook and just started listing things that he wanted from it. I just I did not know how to <laughs> so, counter him. Um, it was weird. <laughs> um, so one thing I I like to do in those situations is uh, I like to ask them. Well, how do you know about this at the at the moment? How does your character know about this? And right. uh, usually. They don't really have an answer. I will say, okay, we'll make a knowledge check. And it could be general knowledge. It could be bardic knowledge. Uh, depending on the item, it could be arcana or religion or whatever. History, whatever, yeah. Yeah. And um, if they roll well enough, they know exactly what the item is. And usually for early levels, I'll make it something very difficult for them to uh, make. Uh, maybe a 20. Um, gotcha. And then if they roll low enough, the item does something completely different from what they thought it did. Or they think it does something completely different from what it does. Yeah, I think one thing that you can do to really um, well, so first you can actually nip that problem in the bud by getting an idea on what their character, what they want out of character before the game starts. So Session Zero is really helpful for that. Because, you know, and I'm not saying you should hand everybody a shopping list and say, hey, what legendary items did you like to find? But you can talk to them a little bit about it, and if it becomes obvious that that's a real motivator for their character, because you will have some players who are really motivated by the like the stats and the decking out of their character. Like that's the thing that motivates them, and that can be really helpful because you can then use that as a motivator and a plot hook for later on. 
So let's say that, you know, they make it known that they want their character to get, you know, the the flame tongue, a, a vorpal flame tongue with, you know, legendary plate armor that was worn by the, you know, forged by the gods in the, you know, heart of a dying star or something. <laughs> and it's like, all right, you can go want all those things. Um, let's try and incorporate it into your backstory for why it is that this is important. And then you can use that as, a, as an interesting hook so that now it doesn't come out of left field when the character's like, I'm just going to walk up to the next shop and say, hey, have you ever heard of this? Do you guys have that? Um, and then you can also kind of start to set those expectations ahead. Okay, maybe there is a Vorpal you know, flame tongue that you can find, but your character knows that this is going to be a legendary item that's you know very difficult to find. In fact, it may even be unique. So they're going to have, a, have it in their head already that I'm just not going to find this in a shop. This isn't an item that can be bought. And so what you can do is you can then say, hey, you know, you hear a whisper of a rumor that, you know, deep inside the heart of, of you know, Mount Mordor or whatever, you can find, uh, you know, you can find the a flame um, King Flink actually brings up a good point that going around asking for legendary items randomly can also draw a lot of unwanted attention. Um, I see. So, um, so you mm-hmm. know, things to keep in mind. The, the player characters are not the only things that have agency in your world. The NPCs can react to that information, and some shops yep. just might think that they're like that they're nuts, right? You walk into a shop and say, "Hey, do you have uh, the Eye of Vecna?" And they're gonna be like, "What? No, get out of my <laughs> shop! What's wrong with you? What is that? <laughs> I don't know what that is, but Vecna sounds like bad news, and uh, I'm gonna call the guards if you don't get out." <laughs> so, um, so you could also dissuade that kind of I behavior see. that way as well. Um, just kind of depends on the severity. I actually never thought about that before where the NPCs you you know you treat them almost like players like you just said like mm-hmm. they have uh the level of agency they they can be aware of things too yeah. I, I I feel like I, when I was using NPCs it was more so just for the story like they would do their job and then that was kind of it they might return later who knows you know what I mean mm-hmm. but I, uh... I, I I now I feel like I could totally use them in a bigger way Absolutely. Uh, one thing I'm big on, really big on, is uh, change between meetings, like real change in NPCs. <clears throat> so um, let's say, for instance, the party has an adventure in a dungeon, and there's a, a cleric who was with them for the adventure, whatever. <clears throat> um, after they part ways at the end of the dungeon, or when they get back to town, um, they don't see that that cleric for three weeks in in game, mm-hmm. and the next time they see that cleric, maybe he's missing an eye. I see, because a lot of a lot of characters that are helping the players aren't just standing around doing nothing; they're living their own right. lives, and the players just aren't there for most of it. Right. So I think using your NPCs. To, to also show the passage of time and the consequences of some of these players' actions is a really good way to use them, too. I actually have a really good follow-up story to that that happened in my current campaign. Um, well, two instances, really. So the first one is the bard randomly seduced a, a, a half-orc barmaid and convinced her to come with them on an adventure to, like, you know, inside this really deadly cavern. Oh, hey, hey John. Um, in chat. <laughs> so, um, so they convince her to come. She lives through the adventure, and then afterwards she joins the other group of NPCs that was with them as an adventure. She basically leaves her bar, her, uh, 
her bartending life behind and joins another adventuring party. The next time they meet up with that adventuring party, it's at a big call to arms because a, uh, an elder brain has been discovered or an elephant lair has been discovered under the city. And so that adventuring poly, uh, party shows up with the barmaid in tow, who's now, you know, like a dual-wielding, you know, fighter-type character. Doesn't know any magic or whatever, but, like, is still competent. Um, along with other groups of adventurers, during that battle, you know, those characters all take uh, take part. There was a third group of adventurers that was, like, uh, one was, like, a, a, like a couple of rangers and, like, a, a straight archer or whatever. And mm-hmm. in that in that big battle against the Illithids, two of the three people died in that person's group. And so it became a, like, and also one of, and uh, also the barmaid actually died during that fight as well. So the cleric in the group opted to, you know, say like, hey, I can actually bring back these people. We just need to, you know, pool our resources, scour the city for as many diamonds as we can find, and I can bring these people back to life. Gets that guy's hopes up that he can bring back, you know, the, the two sisters that were in his adventuring party. They only find one diamond. And so they bring the barmaid back, and they make an enemy of the third of the other guy because now he feels like he's been he's been you know screwed over by these people twice. Once when his you know two friends died, and then again when they got his hopes up and then dashed them. So then later on, when there was a big party where the group was awarded medals for you know ridding the city of the Illithids, and then a giant fight broke out, that guy actually sided against the players because he actively wants revenge now because wow. because of you know the things yep. that the players did. So you can use the player's actions to inform the way that other player characters both see the players as well as the things that they do outside of the the you know peripheral vision of those players as well. Right. Yeah. No, that's a really interesting story that's to show like the evolution of how things went <laughs> downhill almost. Yeah. Um so you know, you can I think it's really helpful to, I mean, you don't want to, like, spend too much time during this doing this right, because, you know, you only have so much time during the week to plan. Um, mm-hmm. And you don't want to, like, say, like, oh, this character had this amazing epic story and then have this huge story, but then the player stuff doesn't sound as interesting. <laughs> like, like ultimately, gotcha. the PCs should be the ones who are having a lot of the um, the action and adventure and stuff like that. But, um, but it's good to keep in mind that the NPCs are going to be doing stuff, too, even when they're not being directly observed. Right. Absolutely. Uh, huh. Real quick, going back to uh, going back to the uh, improv. <laughs> obviously, said uh, in my chat, show me your character is doing something without telling me your character did something. He saw a TikTok that said that it would really uh... add depth to and dimensions to role playing. And I think uh, I think that's really cool. Acting things out can sometimes really help w- with role playing. Yeah. Yeah, it goes a really long way. Um, you know, like, I think that, um, like, it, it can be tough sometimes because it's going to depend on your, your comfort level in role-playing. And obviously the improv mm-hmm. classes help with that confidence, right, where you feel less less weird about making yourself look like a fool. But, um, but I think that that helps. And I think as the DM, you can actually foster that as well. Um, when I started with my current group, only one person had ever played Dungeons & Dragons before me (laughs) everybody else was a new player so it was really up to me as the dm to set the tone for what role-playing looks like and what kind of role-playing i might expect and you know make it clear that if they're not comfortable doing a voice or an accent or or things like that that they don't have to but by being the one to initiate that conversation you know i walk up to a shop 
Okay, uh, you see a shopkeeper. He's uh, bald, has really bushy eyebrows. Looks like maybe he has uh, some eyeliner on or something. And he bats his eyes at you. He says, oh, hi, good looking. And what can I do for you? And suddenly there's this whole character now where they're thinking like, okay, well, I have to respond. Okay, I request for, uh, for you know, rooms for a night. Okay, h- how do you say it? You know, say it in character. Yeah. And right, sometimes right. they necessarily need to be in a voice. Just, you know... Uh, can I have three rooms, one for each of us? And that was just my normal voice, but getting the players to actually do that instead of saying, I request it, have them actually request it is huge. Right, okay. It's a big first step in starting to realize that their character is separate from them as a person. True. Because that's like the biggest hurdle from... um those uh those first timers that they step they don't understand sometimes like i'm role-playing with this is a character and like that realization when they finally get it it's pretty mm-hmm. magical i always like seeing that <laughs> absolutely yeah it helps a little bit with min maxing too right because um sometimes you'll have pcs who just um they always want to make the optimal decision every single turn but mm. depending on their character their character may not do that so, you know, maybe it's optimal to use your, you know, extra attack every turn to deal, you know, an average of, like, you know, 34 damage or something every round. But maybe your character is really heated in that moment and he thinks it's more important to tackle that guy, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, you can start to, to allow those kind of character moments to bleed through. And as DM, it's important to not always make that player feel stupid for doing it. Um, you know, if the character's like, hey, I want to try and, you know, jump up off the, you know, I want to, like, use the wall and rebound off of it to try and, like, grapple and, like, choke slam that guy. Like, okay, I mean, have, you know, give him a shot, but, but, like, don't make him feel dumb for it, right? Like, oh, it fails terribly, you look like an idiot because you're not fortunate enough to do it. Because right, what right, that right. does is that sends the wrong message. It tells them that experimentation is punished, and you don't want that. Right. We want them to be, I guess we want them to be just knowing that, you know, I can do kind of whatever I want as long as the DM kind of allows it, I guess, but I can at least try kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And sometimes yeah. you can subvert it, right? Um, I mm-hmm. I ran a fight where, like, these giant shrimp monsters came from, like, the abyss or whatever, and <laughs> one of my players is like, I want to jump off of this, like, you know, pew or whatever and try and, like, you know, do a vertical slash, like, jump attack. And it's like, all right, cool, they roll the checks or whatever, it's like, Cool, the shrimp catches you and chucks you 50 feet against the wall. Oh my god. <laughs> so like, you know, and that's not that it was a dumb thing to try. You know, the shrimp has like a plus six strength modifier or something, so it wasn't super likely to work. But it was cool that, you know, he tried it. And, you know, we got a little bit of visual comedy for it, because, you know, obviously you expect the, the hero to come in with the with the clutch slave save, and then every once in a while you get to clown on them a little bit. Um but you can't do that too often because you don't want your players to always feel like they're the butt of the joke. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Don't want to like single them out too often. Exactly. Kind of get get kind of give a little bit to everybody. Yeah. I see. Everyone needs a win at the end of the day. Yeah. And like Nick said, sometimes it's better to push them in a pool three times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Because um, like if you're role playing your NPCs correctly, like that stuff will factor in too, right? So mm-hmm. maybe your NPC wasn't going to, you know, target a particular character, right? But their attention got drawn. 
um, in this case, because they were getting harassed. <laughs> so sometimes that can do it too. And I think that as DM, you know, it can be really rewarding because you get to play all of these different character archetypes and really kind of explore how each of these different NPCs will, will work with one another to kind of help create this story with your players. Yep. Right. Yeah. Dang, now I really want to play. <laughs> I know. Oh, talking about D&D always makes me want to play it. <laughs> Yo, same, dude. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's definitely a... um. Yeah, to me, I think it's one of the most rewarding games to play when you get to play it right. Um, yeah. Yeah, look, and there we go. We got uh, we got Mendez in chat who's uh, saying that he'd like to... He, he, that he wants to play, hasn't been able to play with his family in over a month. Um, wow. <laughs> Elvis is saying same. Um, I, I think that uh, one thing, though, that's really helpful is, at least for these times, at least, because we're still, you know, quarantining with COVID and whatnot, is, um, like, Roll20 has been really helpful for me in order to keep my, like, sem some semblance of normalcy going on, um, in yeah. that I can still run my weekly games. And in fact, at this point, like, I've actually been able to incorporate players from both the West and East Coast at this point into my game, um, whereas normally wow. I'd never have that option. So, um yeah, I need to learn World 20, because I, I kind of want to... I, I feel like at this point, I, I live in Orlando now, so I've moved away from mm -hmm. Southern Florida. So, you know, I'm away from all my, all my friends, so I think online is probably the best to go. So I think World 20 would be the best bet. <laughs> it's really not that bad. Um, I, I think that there's definitely some feature... Like, it, it's finicky. It's not, like, the best option there is out there, but for what it is, it's fine. Um, I'd say, um, but don't count yourself out. You know, one thing that I've noticed is when you're a DM, you're never going to be short for players once people know that you're a DM who needs players. Uh, so, okay. So just ask. <laughs> like, you know, presumably you have some job that you, that you're doing right now, or, or you interact with with some number of people. Ask them. Um, you'd be surprised who you know maybe has heard of it, particularly now because D and D is kind of trickled into the pop culture the way that it has. Um, I, I would totally ask, but most of my coworkers are middle-aged women, but we'll see. <laughs> Why not? Maybe. I mean, listen, you'd be surprised what old ladies will want to do sometimes. Yeah, I'd be more than happy to play with them. I just don't know if they like D&D, but I'll ask. You'll well, never the thing know is if that... you don't bring it up. Yeah. Uh, uh, Nick says, uh, don't be a coward. Get Granny Gang going. <laughs> uh Bongola Sky in my chat says uh there's also other options. And mm -hmm. you know, these aren't free like Roll20, but Tabletop Simulator and Tabletop Playground and, uh, uh, VR are all valid options. Right. Yeah, sure. Strongly agree. Um Mendez says that his mom is fifty seven and loves playing D D. So Yeah. You know, one thing to keep in mind too is that for us, at least it's a lot more acceptable for like women and people in general to be into D&D &D, whereas you know the older women that you're working with growing up they probably didn't have that you know cultural luxury of being able to say that they're interested in those sorts of things so maybe it's something that they've always wanted to try and they don't know if they like it or not so that's true you know i think it just depends on the kind of relationship that you have with that with that person and mm -hmm. you know some you ask like worst case scenario they just know that you like D&D &D and they don't right <laughs> Yeah, uh, maybe they'll say no, but at least you know now. Like, okay, I can cross that person off the list. I can cross that person off the list. It's just about being open to having, you know, to to inviting people who may not necessarily seem like your typical player. Um, yeah, 
And maybe they've never actually heard of D&D. Maybe you're their first introduction to it. Maybe just because they work with you and they don't hate you, they'll give it a shot <laughs> because it's something you like. That's true, yeah. I mean, yeah, I have no problem playing with any demographic. I guess I'm just a little shy, but I'll, I'll ask them. <laughs> it could be fun. You never know. And the best part about new players, too, is that you never know what kind of character they're going to make. True. <laughs> because they're free of all those preconceptions, like um, like Ollie the Bard in our game, uh, Marvin. Mm -hmm. um, oh, boy. He never played D&D before, had never been asked before, basically nothing about it. Um, I think he may have heard the the, the game before, but he, he didn't know anything about it, really. Um, I pitched it to to his brother and him, and his brother ultimately ended up deciding not to play any, any further because he had other stuff going on. But this is a guy who, you know, by all counts, is not really into any of that like traditionally nerdy stuff that you might associate with someone who plays D and D like that. Um, and he basically made you know Elf John Lennon, which is something I had never considered doing as a D and D player. But like, he has one of the more compelling characters in my campaign, if I'm being honest. So, um, Elf John Lennon. Yep, <laughs> that sounds hilarious. Yeah. Well, before he that got assassinated. Cool. Um, oh. Course. <laughs> so it would be weird if he was like undead <laughs> i mean but it, would it though would it really i mean at this point no um but but <laughs> the thing is that it gives you like a really cool starting point where like okay i have a character who says that they're in a pop they're in a really popular band right like that's their their backstory okay well that creates some interesting limitations to how i want that player roleplay but i shouldn't say no, you can't be John Lennon. Because, like, why not? <laughs> why can't he be really famous? Like, sure, maybe that's a thing. Just because you're famous doesn't mean you're super powerful. It just means you're possibly well-connected. And maybe even not even with really good people. Like, maybe you're well-connected among a very specific group of people. Um, right. And so, you know, I was like, all right, well, if your character's a part of, you know, the Beatles, then why is your character adventuring? <laughs> and it leads down this path, like, okay, well, maybe my band had a falling out. And it's like, all right, now we have a story, right? Your band broke up, you're off finding yourself, and now your character wants to get the band back together. That's your character's motivation now. It's like the best story ever, honestly. <laughs> and it ultimately ended up being back really... together. I mean, it's what he did. That was his whole character motivation. And unfortunately, oh. the lead guitarist got eaten by news, um, which was really <laughs> tragic. But I'm saying that really like off the cuff, but like it was really tragic because like his character has oh, raised dead. And you can't raise dead without a body, and there's no body if the ooze eats somebody. Oh dear. <laughs> so it's really and tragic. This, can this campaign's ongoing. <laughs> yeah, currently. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's um, awesome. Yeah, and like it's it's just it's because this this moment happens like a year and a half to this person playing, um, right? And so it's like you get to watch the evolution of this player going from not understanding what their character does, like, as a core concept, I don't know what a bard does, to, like, role-playing the anguish of, you know, being somebody who has all of the power in the world to revive someone from the dead, but being incapable of saving the people that he cares most about. Oh, that sounds like the saddest story ever. It was really sad. <laughs> it's so wild. Um, <laughs> it was really sad, but, like, that's, that's, you know, some of the stuff that you can get when you let people just think out of the box when you let them kind of try new things and don't say no, which I guess goes to back to the improv thing, right? Um, 
you know, mm-hmm. right. Don't tell somebody, no, they can't do a thing. Work with your, work with them to the best you can to let them try it out. Mm-hmm. Rather than saying, no, just say you can try. <laughs> like, give it a shot. Roll the dice. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and it, it even goes back to, like, character creation. If someone comes up to you and they say, I want to play a sentient dog. <laughs> okay. Um, sure. We'll make it, we'll make it work. Right. Um, yeah. And like you as the DM can figure out the rules for it. it. Just because it's not in the book doesn't mean that you can't do it. This is a game of imagination first and foremost. The rules are guidelines at best. So mm-hmm. make it work. If it's going to keep that player interested and engaged in the story, then yeah, absolutely. And maybe the backstory is like, well, they weren't always a dog. Maybe they were polymorphed, you know, by some some evil witch or something, and they want to like become a person again. Okay. Oh. Like, mm-hmm. you can work with the player to kind of hash out the specifics, but if they come to you and say, well, no, I really just want to be, like, a, a sentient dog. Okay, cool. Like, that's your character. <laughs> so. If it works, I mean, yeah. If you want to do it, why not? <laughs> exactly. Uh, Definitely. Vongola Sky says, uh, that could backfire, though, because some people will take every opportunity to pull out dumb shit if you're too lenient. And, um, yes and no. A lot of a lot of what you can, what people get away with, comes down to you as a DM. Um, so, like, yeah, letting them be a sentient dog is is one thing, but like, limiting what the dog can do comes up, comes down to you, realistically, as the DM. Yeah, or I think maybe but, a, an example of what they're trying to illustrate is like, okay, well, I want my backstory to be that I'm ludicrously wealthy and the king of a nation. It's like, all right, well, for story purposes, we need to, you can be maybe the king of a nation, but we need to whittle down kind of the scope of what your character, you know, who your character is, because at the end of the day, your character needs a motivation to be adventuring, and that lifestyle really only makes sense for, in some situations. Luckily, Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition comes with backgrounds, (laughs) which are very helpful for players to, uh, know exactly what their options are as far as uh who they could have been yeah it is a very um vast selection of backgrounds and i really i've enjoyed it every time i made a uh, a character and they're super flexible too right like yeah mm-hmm. like one thing that that they did especially with like tasha's that recently came out is the ability to really totally customize whatever your character is um by swapping yeah. out, like, attributes and skills and such like that and these are technically things you always could have done, but I think they're just putting it in the rulebook to really kind of emphasize that, like, hey, like, if you want to play a smart half-orc, you can do that. That's that's not against the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, More money! <laughs> yeah, kind of. Um, <laughs> but, like, you can use that to, to really inform... Um, like, you can use that to inform character creation, um, which I think goes a really long way. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know how to really ask this question, but... I did recently get Tasha's, and I really like the um, the subclasses for all for all the main classes. They're all really interesting, mm-hmm. and it made me kind of dig into all the other subclasses that have been in the past. I think there's one, in, there's some in Zenithars or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but is it like valid to kind of like tell your players like, hey, like why not use some of these? You know what I mean, like. 
kind of not not forcing them just kind of saying like these are open to you would you guys like to use them just kind of give them that option instead of just using just the base you know ranger fighter so on so on kind of show them that evolution you know what i mean Mm -hmm. is that Um, like a valid thing like just kind of show them like i don't particularly have a problem with that i think as long as ultimately the decision's up to them um, one thing that I do find is with new players in particular, it's really helpful to give them something to riff off of. So sometimes mm. just like pointing them in a direction can be really helpful um, if maybe they're struggling to kind of come up with an idea on what they want to do themselves. Gotcha. So um, I think it's important, though, to be gentle about it, because ultimately you want them to, f- to feel like it's their character and that you're not mm-hmm. just letting them play a character that you want to play vicariously true <laughs> right right i've always that. seen like being the dm as like another character and t- i mean technically well really you are playing all the npcs right <laughs> yeah. yeah very true <laughs> i'm all i'm all the characters <laughs> yeah it's a fact um but uh marvin i'm curious to hear your kind of opinion on on uh, john's question there um so i i generally have two different stances as far as this is concerned with new players mm-hmm. um i think it is really good to give them uh give them restrictions so that they don't get overwhelmed by their options um so like in fifth edition at least for the first campaign which i wouldn't make anybody's first campaign be too long personally um unless like it naturally grows to be a lengthy campaign um but i think for new newer players restrictions early on help them understand better in the long run um but for more experienced players i'll straight up tell people which books are allowed i see okay in whatever game i i won't nudge anybody in a in a specific direction um but i'll say this is for example i'll say the core rulebook tasha's and xanathar's are allowed everything else is off the table i see or something i think like i was that. yeah i think i was thinking like a mishmash of what you said but you just be- articulate articulated it better than i so but thank you, both of you. That made a lot of sense. <laughs> um, Alvis and Chad asked, uh, would you ever ask someone uh, someone new what type of character they'd want to be, like from an anime or a show, and build off of that? Um, Marvin, I'll let you answer that first. Um, for a lot of people, that can be really helpful in at least picking a class. Um, because... For example, let's say John wants to be Zoro from One Piece. And it's his first campaign and he's never played Dungeons and Dragons before. And he just really wants to play a character like Zoro from One Piece. Well, if he tells me that, I can say the obvious answer is Fighter. Fighter's really good at using swords. You can dual wield. Um, and, you know... As the DM, I can make up something where maybe you can triple wield by putting a sword in your mouth. I actually have a, another another possibility for that if you want to get abstract a little bit. Um, sure. Play a war cleric and have your spiritual weapon be a sword in your mouth. That works too. Absolutely. See? 
Um, but like that, that gives people a really good starting point for where their character should start being built from. Yeah, I think that it also can be really helpful for giving them an idea on like their character traits themselves, because a lot of times new people who are totally new, never played before, they um, they don't know how to start making a character. So either they end up you know just playing themselves, which is totally valid. Um, or they pick like a couple of tropes and stick to that. But if they're playing or riffing off of like Zoro from One Piece, it's more them kind of saying like, oh, I want to be like, I'll just do what I think Zoro would do in this situation. Um, mm-hmm. you know, or maybe do what, what like a weaker Zoro would do in this situation. Because um, I think one thing <laughs> to keep in mind is that like all anime characters have like a 20 in every stat. According to yeah. <laughs> um, or better. Or better, right? So, <laughs> so you'll never be able to do it one to one, but I think it can be helpful um, to kind of get an idea. Um, one thing Minda said in my chat is when introducing people to the game, when I ask them how do you, uh, when I what I ask them rather is uh, how do you want to interact in combat, uh, because it gives them an aspect to draw inspiration of their characters from other media, um, and then explain to them that for role playing purposes they don't need a specific class or stat to do that. Um, I think that that's also you know can be really helpful. Uh, I don't personally focus on combat all that much. Like, combat is a big part of my campaigns that I run, but when I do character creation, I don't usually focus on combat as, like, a key aspect. What I want is someone who's going to enjoy playing that character, because a lot of the game is going to be outside of combat. Right. Would you say it's... For the combat and, um, I guess, uh, what would you call it? speech scenarios um would would you say it's like a what 70 30 percent kind of ratio maybe Um, 60 40 i think marvin's probably better judge for me (laughs) that that depends entirely on the campaign and how everybody is trying to play Mm -hmm. um because for example in the campaign that i'm running right now uh we went five sessions without combat what really? That's that's like twenty five hours with no combat. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So like, in that campaign, it's like ninety percent role play, ten percent combat. Um, and you know everybody is enjoying playing this way, so there's no reason to change anything. And I think mm-hmm. in Owen's campaign that I'm playing in right now, uh, I was the last player to join. At least for the time that I've been in the campaign, it's like sixty forty. Um, but even then, I went three sessions in that campaign without a single combat encounter. Other people were in combat, but yeah. I was just talking to people. Arguably better, because <laughs> um, <laughs> um, they they were kind of instigating. Um, but yeah, uh, so it in, it entirely depends on the campaign and the players and what you're trying to do um so for for people like owen and myself where a lot of our campaigns are less combat than normal we're not going to focus on combat statistics so much as the character itself gotcha yeah just a small amendment to that though I think what's important to also be aware of, though, is what kind of players you have at the table. Like, one mm-hmm. of the main reasons that I do skew more towards combat is, one, I find it interesting. Um, but two, one of my players is basically solely motivated by combat. That's what they enjoy doing. 
and basically, yep. you know, disconnect a lot of the time during roleplay scenarios. So that person's not going to be engaged with the game unless combat happens periodically. So that's something that does skew combat a little bit more frequently into my campaign than maybe I would have done otherwise. Um, also, true. as a consequence, that person tends to resolve conflicts through combat, whereas other groups of players could actually resolve a lot of the conflicts that come up um, through just roleplay anyways. Um, in fact, I think one of the first major encounters in this campaign that came up before um, before said player joined it was actually a huge, like, you know, big, you know, breakout where they were breaking people out of a prison. And there was a barred rogue in the party that just basically grifted um, and got a bunch of prisoners released by just impersonating a high superior officer. <laughs> it was going to be a big oh combat encounter and it just wasn't. Like, or rather, it was. Like, there was a fight. It was a smaller combat encounter. Well, the thing is, he didn't break character, so when the other players started the fight, he roleplayed as the superior officer and started barking decisions for the NPCs, for the enemies to follow. <laughs> um, That's great. It was honestly really helpful. <laughs> because, like, you, you know, get to the deeper prison, and sure, they don't release anybody down there, knowing that they really just need the guy who's in this room. <laughs> um, I so. like that. So it just depends on how your players awesome. are kind of approaching the problem solving as well, and if you're going to be receptive right. to it. Because one person could could take that scenario and instead of rolling with the with the player uh, doing that, saying, "Well, this guy sees through your through your disguise right away because you didn't you know command him the way that he would expect to be," and like just not even give him a roll and just like have him join combat because that's what I want him to do. But you know, right? You know, it's, and it's, it's improv. <laughs> yeah, and I think. <laughs> This I think this rolls back to my first question, pretty much, where I was asking, how do I make combat more interesting? And I, I know you guys are saying, you know, how, how do you determine, well, how, how are your players when the combat is occurring? And now that I'm thinking about it, I mean, two of the, it was four players. Two of the players were completely, like, just, like, bleh with the combat. They did not seem to care. The other two were, like, really in it. Like, they were excited, you know, they were, like, going in, and I was like, what am I doing wrong? Because, like, two of them are, like, not, don't seem to be enjoying it. Like, does the combat suck? Like, are my are, are my enemies too easy? Like, what's going on? They were, like, level three at the time. It was, like, second session or something. Mm -hmm. And I, I, so I think you guys just added on more to, more to your original answer from the uh, first question. And it's, it's, it's opened up my mind a bit to everything, kind of just understanding how the players what they enjoy, you know, if they enjoy roleplay or if they enjoy mm -hmm. combat, you know. I really need to talk to them next time to kind of understand what they um, want out of the the campaign, out of the game, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, um, go ahead. <laughs> it could also be that they they didn't really understand combat. Uh, I see that as a uh, an issue with a lot of newer players. They know that they have to roll dice and that they have. Uh, a game board that they can move around on and that's really all they know with a lot of newer players um, and especially for like magic characters uh, they could be just overwhelmed with all the things that they can do as a wizard or a sorcerer and not know what, what to do mm -hmm. um, but a lot of newer players just see combat as uh I move as far as I can move towards the enemy until I'm next to them, and then I attack with my weapon. And that's not very engaging, but that might be all they know how to do. 
I see. It's actually quite boring. Because imagine, like, this is actually something that came up with, um, uh, sorry, Uh, Shinfit says, what kind of games do they like? Based on that, you can cater battles to that. So that's actually a really good piece of advice for for if you do Mm -hmm. want to do that, is figure out what they like. Okay. And then try and, and and use that as inspiration. So if they like more cerebral games, like if they're like really into chess, well then maybe design an encounter where they can command units, and that influences mm-hmm. the battle in some way. Um, oh, okay. If they like games like Smash Brothers, for instance, where they just want a, a knockout brawl, well then introduce maybe a chaotic fight situation where there's multiple parties. Um, yep. So. Um, uh, so, so said, like you suggest to them to ask or, or ask them how they did the move or that move compared to just I use my spell uh, and absolutely I would um, if they say I'm going to cast lightning bolt I'll be like well do you have a, a arcane focus or do you have a component pouch uh, are there somatic components to this do you have to move uh, is there a verbal component maybe you have to say a spell um, and I think that also will help them get engaged in combat too, having a, coming up with a visual for it. Yeah. And let, them, let them do it. Let them like alter their spells. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I play a necromancer in a uh, Monday campaign that I run and I have Maximilian's earth and grasp. And instead of it just being an earth in hand, it's a skeletal earth in hand. And just like that little bit alone makes the spell feel so much more me than just, you know, using that. So you can actually let the players kind of customize their spells a little bit. I know, Marvin, mm-hmm. I let you do this with um, a bunch of spells changing their damage types. Um, yep. And it really can, can add another le- level of of interest. But to, um, to kind of get to the initial point I was trying to make, um, in when it comes to combat, you know, you want to make sure that, that it's... that A, you kind of know what that player wants, and really kind of play towards that. And, you know, so, some people are just not going to like certain stuff. Like, um, um, but then I guess the, the short version is once you do know that, like, okay, my characters do like combat, they just don't like my combat, then you can start to ask yourself, okay, what can I do to spice this up? And, you know, depending on what problems the players may perceive are, are occurring, that can influence how you want to tackle that problem. I gotcha. Yeah, I, I really like the idea um, your friend said about the uh, what kind of games the the players like to kind of incorporate mm-hmm. the gameplay combat into D&D, the combat that they do in D&D, to kind of expand on it instead of just being like, uh, three orcs in front of you guys, okay, what do you do? <laughs> like, you know, yep. yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. The other thing, too, is remember, those NPCs are, like, living things a lot of the time. So play them that way. Um, Most living, intelligent creatures will not fight to the death. A lot of the times they will flee. So um, playing creatures intelligently can also help you as a DM help distinguish from them. So that way, if a player runs into a mob of goblins, that feels distinct from running into a mob of gnolls, which feels very different than trying to, you know, flush out a bunch of kobolds. Right? Right. Um, I, re- I really like the idea of, I, as far as I've been DMing, I've done about like two big boss battles, and it, I really like the idea of having the bosses summon minions and using the terrain to their advantage. 
mm-hmm. um, just to like circumvent around the party or just, you know, crash the ceiling or if they're in the cave, you know, cave it in, um, summon some goblins as extra backup when he gets low on HP or something, you know? Mm-hmm. I always found that to be really fun. Why don't you tell us about some of the like some of the combat encounters that are really memorable to you, either combat encounters that you've run yeah. or have been a part of? Yeah. Um. So, the, my most memorable campaign that I ran it lasted for about three sessions, and then you know scheduling issues, mm-hmm. classic D and D thing. <laughs> but um, in the first couple sessions, <clears throat> so the players were in Eberron. Um, I really like that world because it's like steampunk and all that. Mm-hmm. But um. So, um, they were, it was like the first campaign, they just left the tavern, um, and, uh, what was it they did? Oh, I'm trying to remember now. Uh, oh yeah, I forgot what the robots are called. In Eberron. Do you guys remember? Uh, I've never actually run a game in Eberron. Uh, oh, okay, well you know what I mean though, right? Yeah. Yes, the Warforged, yes. There <laughs> Thank we go. You. Thank you. Okay, so a Warforged spy had um, stolen something from uh, a special NPC, and the players were tasked with getting it back. The Warforged, I'm kind of like going quick because I'm trying to remember the whole thing, but <laughs> also getting excited because I want to play. But the D&D, uh, <laughs> Warforged ran away into the sewer system of the main city, which was a Sharn, um, huge city. And um, in the, I, so, so the first encounter, <laughs> that was the context. First encounter, the they're in the sewer system, and I had the Warforged hide underwater. The players came in. It was really dark. They needed torches or some kind of dark vision in order to see. And at the end of every round, I made the uh, sewer system, the pipes, uh, like the grates would open because, you know, it's a, it's a living, breathing city, so people were flushing the toilets and stuff. And sewage would crash on the party. If they were in the way, I would have them tell me their placements. And if they were in the way of the water coming out of the uh, pipe it, pipes, um, I think they would suf- suffer from a movement penalty. And I think I put some poison in there too, just like minor things, um, while also having the Warforged hiding in the water, jumping out at them and attacking. So that was fun. <laughs> and that sounds like a really cool encounter. Like, I'm not going to lie. Like, that's like actually that. really... Like, I think that what's interesting there is you have a lot of different elements that are going on, and it's not all just damage. Because I think that's sometimes mm-hmm. something that you can fall into, where it's just like, how do I you know, make this a difficult encounter? Okay, I just give them a lots of dice, right? I just have them roll lots of dice. And, like, that can be dangerous, but it's not super engaging a lot of the time. Um, so I think right. I, I like what you're doing there where you're, you know, trying to think of different elements of the, the fight that make it more dangerous. Okay. Limited lighting. That's already really dangerous depending on the party composition, um, which I'm sure Marvin yep. will attest to, um, you know, <laughs> the water level also, I'm sure Marvin will attest to, can be really dangerous, particularly if you have short characters yeah. in your party. Um, there's a reason I keep bringing this Such up. Such as a halfling. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if you have a three-foot halfling and the room is now filled with three and a half feet of water, well, guess who's swimming? <laughs> and yeah. that could be really, really big, especially if they don't have, you know, since halflings don't have dark vision and it's already a dark tunnel. Well, now they can't see the enemy either, and the room is rapidly filling with water. Um, so <laughs> that, that does... Re- oh, sorry. Go, Go ahead. ahead. No, no, you're good, man. <laughs> um, 
So that does actually remind me of something at, this, at the session where there was a halfling monk, and because he was having really uh, a lot of difficulty in the water, I think the it was either orc or just a, a bigger human uh, had him on piggyback for most of the fight. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot of fun <laughs> but like that's a clever solution to an unconventional problem right like the yeah. half when you say like i'm gonna play a halfling monk like you know generally they're thinking that they're gonna find you know master asia the undefeated of the east they're not thinking that they're gonna have to worry about you know a, a sewer system filling with water that's above their head um so i think that that's yep. a really interesting way that you can um solve that problem <laughs> you know or like <laughs> hey you know and the thing is too is like you can use that um you can use different elements to make what might be what is normally a dangerous uh, or inconvenient aspect of an encounter into an outright deadly one. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for instance, just, you know, last week or whatever, I ran a uh, session where I have, you know, basically uh, four 13th level characters and like a 12th level character in a fight, right? Now, the dungeon puzzle was set up such that two of the players were automatically removed from the fight. And the remainder had to fight a horde of ghouls or ghasts. Um, and ghasts have a, a property of their slash attack, which is if they hit you, you have to make a constitution saving throw. And if you fail it, you're paralyzed for a minute, repeating the save every turn to you know try and free yourself. The DC is like oh, wow. 12, right? So it's a really low DC. But like even characters with really good modifiers to their constitution save are going to fail it eventually, you know, at some point in time. And you're Sometimes like, you just roll low. Yeah, sometimes you just roll low, right? There was a barbarian in the group. They have like a plus eight modifier, and I rolled a one. Like, uh. it was really inconvenient. But you know, when you're paralyzed, obviously in in fifth edition, that's really dangerous because you take auto crits to anything that hits you. That's in melee range, um, mm-hmm. and that in of itself is dangerous when you're engaging with like you know undead zombie things. What made it especially dangerous is that the room was filled with a foot and a half of water. If you're paralyzed, you fall over. <laughs> you can't. Oh, no. You can't stand. You can't. You can't hold your breath either. So basically, immediately as soon as the bard went down um, from getting paralyzed by one of these things and mauled, um, the barbarian had to stop what they were doing and just pick him up to keep his head above water because otherwise he was going to drown. <laughs> um, yeah. Yep. Oh my gosh. So, and I'll have you know, I did not consider that interaction until it actually happened. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, it just happened to work out for you yeah it really did right um but you can use that to kind of um, you can look at at it, at it and say like okay what do i want to incorporate to make the combat different or difficult so sometimes what i'll do is i'll start by like looking through the spell book and seeing if there's any like interesting spells that i can incorporate into the combat or aspects of spells to incorporate um you know so for instance like maybe maybe there's like several tunnels or whatever and like there's a really powerful gust of wind that blows through them periodically which maybe that limits movement in some way um that's certainly something that you can do um shifting tunnels uh light i I think that your sewer encounter really kind of exemplifies a lot of the aspects of what starts to make interesting combat encounters um not just like the various individual elements but also thinking okay what what are my players' strengths, and how do I create situations that force them to work a little bit differently? Um, that they can still work mm-hmm. through, but may make them reconsider the way that they have to approach fighting. Right. Do you guys usually have your, your players' character sheets handy on you, like, at all times, just to, like, copies of them? Just to uh, see them, or...? I have, I have very recently started doing this, yes. Um, 
and not necessarily during combat, but when I'm planning combat mm -hmm. or other encounters, I like to know what the players have available to them. Right. Um, ever since I started DMing, I've always demanded that I'm the one who holds on to all of the character sheets over the week um, between mm. games. The reason is because someone inevitably forgets theirs. So I want to make sure that if, you know, that basically, like, I'm never going to forget it. Or I virtually never do. So that way I always have all the characters, whether the person shows up or not. Because um, that can also be a thing, too. Let's say, you know, we're playing and you don't show up one week. Well, maybe I had a combat encounter that is going to happen and now I need your character's stats, but I don't have them offhand. Um, that can be problematic. So for that reason, I always hold on to it. But absolutely, I do take a look at like what my players' capabilities are and begin to kind of imagine what are some some things that kind of can can work against them. Like, um, like you know your party's composition, and you know how they tend to function in combat. So, so from that, you can kind of start to work out, like, okay, what's a, you know, I'll give my player some wins, but periodically I will say, like, okay, let's give a really hard time to the rogue this week, you know? <laughs> like, let's, oh. let's, let's design a combat <laughs> encounter that's going to make it really difficult for the rogue to do his thing. And it's going to force the player to think outside the box and how they normally would fight. Uh, good for instance, he uses a psychic weapon, right? Okay, anytime he fights constructs, he has to completely rethink the way that he has to approach combat because his default doesn't work anymore. Yep. Um, psychic doesn't affect uh, constructs? Most of them. I mean, if there's a uh... sentient construct, then it might, but the mindless ones, it doesn't usually. Oh, I or see, because it's example, a mind attack. Or for example... Uh, put the wizard in an anti-magic field. Oof. Yeah, you want to be careful with that, right? Because obviously, like, you don't want a player to feel like, okay, well, I just can't play the game. Um, <laughs> so you do want to be kind of mindful of that. But definitely having aspects like that incorporated into, into a fight can force the players to start to think outside of the box. So, like, in the instance where it's like, well, maybe the wizard doesn't have to be in the anti-magic field, but in order for them to take certain actions in combat, they need to put their character into harm's way to do that. And so maybe their goal is to wait on the outside of that field where they can provide support, and now the fighter's goal is not to necessarily engage with the enemies inside the field, but maybe to try and drag them outside of it. Oh my, yeah. <laughs> and that does so, seem really fun. If only Good that idea. had worked. <laughs> Notably did not try. Um... I sense a trend. I, is this happening to you, Marvin? <laughs> uh, yeah. It was literally I didn't have to go into the anti-magic field. I chose to go into the anti-magic field. You were a wizard? Yeah, yeah. Among <laughs> other things, yes. Um, I, I have, I'm a multi-class character, and I just uh, took my first level of fighter, and I got a fancy longsword that could light itself on fire. And I was like, might as well. <laughs> how, did, how did you get that sword, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, the party had, uh, acquired it before I joined. I see. And, uh, when my character decided, and this was an in-character decision to start learning how to fight without using magic, because magic doesn't solve everything, um, one of the other players said, here, I have another magic sword, I want you to have this one. Huh. So he just and, gave me a magic sword. 
And this is Owen's campaign, correct? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I guess a question for you, Owen, and also Marvin. Um, how do you normally uh, dictate how you give out treasures, like victory uh, spoils at, at a dungeon or something? Like, what treasure ideas do you usually give out? Um, wow, okay. Um, so I think that when it comes to, like, treasure allocation, part of it is being mindful on, like, how the players are going to want to allocate that. Because you'll have some players who just want to hoard everything, and that's not fun, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, like, sometimes setting up items that are just, like, kind of anybody can really use it and just kind of see what the players do with it can be interesting. Or sometimes I'll seed items that are very much intended for a particular character. Um, so, like, a good example would be, um, like, a Ring of Jumping, which has recently become a pet, uh, you know, item that I, I give out. Um, anybody can use it. It's just an extra movement option. Uh, mm. But, you know, how the players allocate those magic items when they find them, that can lead to really interesting situations, certainly. Um, mm -hmm. So part of it is I'll kind of look at, you know, pre-existing magic items and see kind of what might be interesting for the players to have. But you do have to be very careful about what you give your players too early because there are going to be certain situations where a player uses a magic item in a way you did not intend. And I that see. can be really tough. And it gets even cr even trickier when you start to incorporate homebrew items, which I do a lot of. And so you can run into a situation where you give somebody a homebrewed item that's just simply too powerful for where they're at. Or, you know, makes them outshine other members of the party. So that can be a, a really tricky balance to kind of strike. And I'll, I'll get to that, a, to kind of how to do that in a minute, but I'm sure Marvin has something he wants to add. Uh... So, I generally don't give out magic items as rewards for completing dungeons. And that's just because I don't do a lot of dungeons. <laughs> um, but I will generally, and this is something that I've recently started doing, um, I will have a place where they can kind of describe to somebody what they want after a, a a really tough victory or something like that, there will be a place where they have earned a reward and they can basically describe the thing they want. And that will usually be the end of the session, them telling me what they want. And I will mm -hmm. make something or find something for them that the NPC will give them as a reward for whatever they've done. Um, I see. One of uh, my... That's how I like to do it, mostly because it means everybody gets what they want. Um, and I can kind of dictate the, the power level, but there are, there are lots of ways you can figure out how to give out magic items and rewards and stuff. You know one of my favorite ways? And it kind of messes with the players and it really throws them for a loop. Hmm. Give magic items to the bad guys. Hmm. Oh yeah, that's a uh, good one. Um, I like that one too. <laughs> so it actually became a big point because uh, my the fighter in my in my party he got into a fight with a master assassin and he had a necklace that every time he was struck he could use up some of its magic to to fire a lightning bolt at the attacker dealing half the damage back to them. And that messed him up the first time that they fought, and it messed him up the second time they fought too. 
Um, and in fact, it, they they killed each other. Basically, um, they both went oh to death my. saving throws um, because they they basically <sighs> killed each other on the same turn because he dealt the final blow, but then the lightning necklace shocked him to death as well. So um, so death saving throws. He lives. The other guy doesn't. But they started a fight in the middle of town. So the police come and collect the body and then basically take his his necklace as evidence because you know they fought in the middle of a town. Um, so then later that town falls to anarchy and. Uh, <laughs> Gongi Tempai, yeah, exactly right. Like, uh, like Shaolin Showdown, <laughs> um, um, <laughs> like Shaolin Showdown, right? Uh, you could you know, honestly, that would probably be a really fun like campaign uh, concept. By the way, um, is the Shaolin Showdown? Um, anyways, I'd play that campaign. Oh yeah, I'd play the shit out of it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, anyways, long story short, the city fell into like literal anarchy, and so like another gang broke into the storeroom at the police department and took all of the magic items that were locked up, and that was a problem. But hey, my fighter eventually got the necklace that he wanted, like you know, like something like five months after the fact, um, in in game. <laughs> And like it was so memorable that he's like, "Wait, they broke into the into the evidence storeroom. All right, I need to find this necklace. Like, <laughs> like who has That's it?" That's awesome. <laughs> and the thing is, that'll actually form an emotional relationship with that item long before the player ever actually gets to use it. Mm-hmm. So if they fight like you know some powerful enemy or whatever, and they have this like really wicked magic sword, well, if they ever defeat that enemy, they get the magic sword. Um, yep. And that makes it feel different than just if they found it in a shop or, you know, found it in some dungeon somewhere. It also right. feels more earned having had to fight against it now that they're the, the owner of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, other yeah. one, too, uh, sometimes just, like, as literal quest rewards. Um, you know, I did one where, like, where a, you know, malevolent spirit basically had the players do a favor for them and literally just gifted the players stuff um that it thought would they would find interesting or helpful and in that case i gave a tailored reward to each of the players where i looked at their character sheet and decided okay what would this character like the most um and it was it was an interesting situation marvin got like a pretty powerful magic staff i gave one player a a book that would let them get a permanent plus two to one of their stats and bump it over 20 because that was a min-max player, so that's the only thing he would ever want in life. Um, <laughs> I awarded... That's nice he gave him that. Yeah, I mean, he likes it, um, obviously. <laughs> I, I gave the I gave the bard a sixth-level spell that doesn't appear on the bard spell list because it was really on theme with uh, the character. Oh. Yep. Which, which was it? Uh, Investiture of Fire, which is normally a wizard spell. Oh. But it's a lore bard, so he's gotten a bunch of spells from other spell lists already. And, like, his go-to spell is, like, Wall of Fire. Like, how could I not? Yeah. <laughs> and, like, That's his awesome. go-to spell is Firebolt. Uh, so he's a flame bard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's cool. This is John Lennon, by the way. I just want you to know that. Oh. <laughs> uh, so. um, one thing you can also do is, if a character is good at combat, give them a magic item that isn't inherently combat based. Ooh, that's a big one actually. Strong well, advocate. I mean, because my character is one of the higher damage dealers in the party. Uh so when Owen gave me the staff that has uh spells built into it that it can use, none of them deal damage. They're all utility spells. 
and I really like that. Honestly, Wizards okay. are some of the hardest characters. <laughs> yeah, I think it does give you like a passive plus one to your spell attack bonus, but um, but the thing is that like wizards are really difficult to get magic items for because like so much of their character is just their spell list already. So mm-hmm. it's really right. tough in my experience, at least trying to like think of like interesting or useful magic items for those characters that they can't replicate with a spell in some way. Um, so when I happened across uh, that staff concept uh, in the Ravnica book, I was like, oh, I can definitely like reappropriate this this item and make it different enough that it's useful to your character and provide you with enough extra utility. Because like having items that replicate spells can be helpful for a wizard because it means that they have stuff they can do that doesn't use up their limited spell slots. But that's not always going to feel interesting. Um, so it's really going to be kind of up to that item and maybe the flavor of that item to really kind of describe what it does. And I think non-combat items for combat-oriented characters can be really helpful in helping them think outside the box. Another example I have is um, the min-maxed rogue in my party. Um, he, well, the group of master assassins um, had a member of that assassin group that had an amulet that would allow them to transform into an owl. So for like a year and a half out of game, we every time they were in a new city, they would look for owls in the, in the sky because they were paranoid they were being followed. <laughs> um, they eventually ended up in a conflict with this group again, and after the fight kind of went, you know, went to hell, uh, the, the rogue went back to the site of the battle uh, because basically they had burned down the entire mansion that they were fighting in, you know, because the bard's a pyromaniac. Um, <laughs> so the whole mansion had burned down, and they had killed one of the assassins, so he went back to go check the ruins of the mansion on his own, and he found the amulet. So now my min-maxed, you know, rogue, who I don't really want to be any more powerful in combat than he already is, has an item that lets him transform into an owl twice a day. I don't know what he's going to uh. do with it. But it gives his character a whole new dimension on how he can utilize his character that he couldn't do before. Right, his options. Exactly. So yeah. I don't know how he's going to use it in the future, and honestly, he always forgets that he can do it at all. Um, <laughs> but but not every player is going to be like that. Some of them are going to you know really look for opportunities to leverage those cool magic items. I like that idea of giving... Just like, I guess how I always thought about it was... You know, like a, uh, for example, a play the the player group, they finish a dungeon and at the end they find some gold and they find like I don't know like a magic sword or something, and uh, and like that. But I like your guys's way of doing it, where it's not just like they just find like a magic weapon, they find like utility tools, they find stat buffs, they find you know mm-hmm. transformative items. The owl thing you were saying, Owen, that's a great idea. It's just like it's random and it's fun. You know, I like that. That's cool. I'm taking notes, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, like one, for instance. So my players are, are running through a pretty big dungeon right now, and um, the party missed out on a uh, on an item drop earlier. That it's um, I, I forget what it's called. It's like a ring of navigation, where like it's a ring that just dis- that just you know keeps track of where you've been when you're inside of a dungeon. And you and you can basically like say the magic word and make it make an illusory three D map of the whatever building you're inside of. Like, oh wow, that's just really helpful because it gives the char- the player characters a um. Yeah, my fighter is really pissed because he's in chat. Um, so, <laughs> so um, 
here's the spoiler. It was the <laughs> room that could boil you alive in oil. Um, so, so anyways, um, it gives the players kind of an in-universe justification for something they're probably already doing, which is keeping track of the layout of the dungeon. I see. Um, you know, or uh, another item I did was it's not it wasn't even a magical item. It's just it was a leather harness that they found on a body. And the harness can be loaded with a single potion, and when it's loaded, you have quick access to it. So you can drink the loaded potion as a bonus action instead of having, having to make it as an action. Oh. So, you know, because my players always ask me, like, can I drink this as a bonus action? I have to keep telling them that it's an action to, to retrieve a stored item. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I made it an item that, like, could be replicated. It's, a le- it's just a leather harness that, you know, it's not magical in any way. It's mundane. But, like, clearly some character in the world thought of doing it this way. And it gives them kind of, like, the ability to plan ahead. You know, maybe they don't put a healing potion in there. Maybe they store, like, a potion of fire breathing or something. And they just want to be able to pop it right in the middle of battle. So it gives the players kind of an interesting way to to circumvent maybe an area of the rules that they're not super happy with. While still having, like, an in-universe justification for why it is that these players are able to retrieve items and, and use them so quickly, even though it might not necessarily make sense in universe for how one could retrieve an item from their, you know, from their bag, pop the cork and drink it, and then still be able to do other stuff. So. And Great also, ideas. It also leaves room for like more creative players to think about, maybe we can modify it so it can hold two potions or six potions or whatever. Um, so like, and Nick, don't steal my idea, because that was my idea first. Um, <laughs> but it, it leaves it leaves a lot of room for making this item more than it is. Instead of just being one item that does one thing, we could make eight of them, and they can hold four things. If we do it right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, and, like, I wouldn't have ever thought of that. Like, I made the item strictly to circumvent a problem that my players continue to run into, which is they wanted to use more potions inside of uh, inside of combat than they were currently using. And so this is my kind of solution to that. I wouldn't have considered that the players could modify it further, but I wouldn't have told them no. In fact, my intention was for them to replicate it so that everybody could do it at some point in time, rather than just the one person who happened to, to, to strap on the harness and kind of you know, uh. get, it, get it going. So... <laughs> That's, no, that's funny. Nick, we can't drink potions as a free action. That's not how that works. <laughs> I mean, the if you want to, like, bane it talking. up... <laughs> it's facts, right? Um, <laughs> nope, that's it, everybody, right? <laughs> oh. That's um, the name of the show, uh, he ti- said it, uh... Title drop. Yeah, right, <laughs> title card. Um, <laughs> so, um, so that's something you can do. Um, one thing I did uh, run into, and I didn't incorporate one of these... I didn't incorporate this item into this particular dungeon because of my party comp- uh, comp- uh, composition. But if you're running a group with only a limited number of players, sometimes you'll run into situations where the players don't have an easy ability to resolve a problem. So, um, so for instance, let's say you're playing a group with only three players, but no one plays a rogue. Well, what do we do for the locked door problem, right? Like, normally a rogue would just pick it. Yeah, and sometimes you know maybe they just have a barbarian or a fighter and they just knock it down and that's cool, but maybe we can start to kind of substitute some of those missing abilities with items that they can find along the way. So maybe the party finds a you know a limited use item 
maybe it's a bell that, you know, when they ring it, it casts knock on a door or a chest, but the bell breaks after the third use. So this gives the players limited ability to kind of, you know, break, uh, you know, break it, you know, B and E basically, um, without necessarily causing a huge ruckus. And that can be really helpful. Um, (laughs) Kingfling says, never seen a door that a fireball couldn't unlock. Um, metal ones, metal doors, stone, um, but wooden ones often will yield to fire, uh, given enough time and, and, uh, gumption. But, but yeah, so depending on your player's party composition, you can kind of look at what, maybe what are some things that are missing and incorporate those kind of items or utilize items to fill holes in the character's build. So for instance, my bard character has like garbage charisma. It's just the way that, that he built his character stats. He was a new player. He had like a 14 or something. So I gave him a magic item that gave him a 19. And that's like the item that he has to run. Um, it's like a oh. like a bracelet or something that just sets his, his uh, stat to a 19. And so, you know, he's the one who ends up using it because the party decides that that's the best place to put that kind of item. And it helps kind of make the player not feel as bad for having not totally min-max their character by giving them a means to kind of get around that that decision making or that that build decision very good ideas lots of notes thank you (laughs) yeah no problem so um so yeah um, i guess we've kind of gotten a little bit away from the instant combat encounter idea though so i know we had mentioned it last (laughs) week um about like some of the things that we use to incorporate so lighting is a big thing for me um verticality is another big thing for me as well. Um, making a combat encounter multiple dimensions or taking place in multiple locations at the same time can add really interesting dynamics to how the players tackle that problem. Mm-hmm. How, do, how does that work, the multiple location thing? Uh, so sometimes you can actually like create a situation where the, character, where the players are literally divided by like some sort of barrier or something. Um, so I ran a combat encounter where there was a bridge and there was a gate on the bridge, and as the players were passing under the gate, the gate slammed shut, it pinned the fighter to the ground, it trapped the bard on one side, and the cleric and the, um, and the, um, what was the other one? The cleric and the warlock on the other side. Sorry. Uh, um, and so this okay. created an interesting combat situation where the fighter could, um, did I play Duel of the Fates during that? I, I wish I did. <laughs> um... So it created an interesting situation where the bard has to fight against this master assassin on one side of the door, and this other master assassin is attacking the two players on the other side of the door while they're getting pelted by arrows, and the fighter spends the next two actions trying to lift this heavy gate to get himself out from underneath it because he can't move and he's pinned to the ground. Um, And then he has to decide what side of the gate am I going to roll onto? Do I roll onto the side with the bard and try and help fend him off, or do I roll onto the other side and help my other comrades? And so... This is a situation where the two where the two groups of players can see each other, but they can't really maneuver to the other side to fight the enemies that are kind of locked on one side or the other. I see. But yeah, that sounds really fun. <laughs> um, so, so that's one option. Um, or you could have the fight literally take place in another location. So I had a fight start where uh, my warlock was ambushed while they were uh, trying to get a long rest. And someone walked up and basically teleported the warlock and themselves into the middle of town, basically, while the town was you know closed up for the night. And so the players immediately 
afterwards didn't know where they went until, you know, a fireball went off in the middle of town. They've surmised, oh, they must be in the middle of town. So then they spend, like, you know, five rounds trying to get to the warlock who's having a one-on-one fight with this other, you know, unknown assailant. And that can also create an interesting tension as well, um, where, like, now the players have to consider, okay, what's the fastest way for my character to move from point A to point B? Um, And so that's on you as a DM to kind of be aware on, like, what those players' capabilities are. Because obviously if no one can fly, well, then that doesn't really... That, that's not actually a really interesting situation for the entire party. In fact, it's likely just going to get the warlock killed. Um, oh my. <laughs> so, so that can be really helpful as well. Um, and then like verticality is the other thing I like to incorporate where like you have multiple levels for characters to, um, to move between, which can help as well. I gotcha. Yeah. Verticality is something that I always thought about using. And I think I used it a couple times. Um, but I, I never thought about the teleportation or like the multiple location idea. That's awesome. That sounds really fun. <laughs> um, it absolutely can be. Yeah. Um, but you can't do it too often. Right, right. Um, but you you can definitely use that in some very creative ways. Um, one thing that I like to do is I like to have like rubble or large objects in the in the uh combat field mm-hmm. um that can be used as cover or can be thrown around or moved in some way um and like that makes combat more more interesting without making it too complicated right um because if if the enemies can hide behind a rock all of a sudden your archer doesn't have a clear shot or the the wizard doesn't have line of sight for their light their lightning bolt or their fireball. I see. It's like forcing movement for for your mm-hmm. players to kind of move around the battlefield, flank, and use like uh, uh, other sh- other strategies other than mm-hmm. just aim aim and shoot or walk up to and hit. That makes sense. It makes positioning uh, a bigger factor in combat. Yeah. Yeah, it can go a really long way towards. Um... Just changing it up, because what you don't want is to f- have the players feel like every combat just takes place on a featureless board. <laughs> Whereas, right. like, where are we? It's like, we are on the Windows desktop. <laughs> um, like, that's it. We're, we're in a green hill, and, um, you know, that that's the combat encounter, right? Um, incorporate different elements of, uh, of the terrain into the fight, and that can also go a really long way towards it. Um, you had mentioned before, like, boss characters who can, um, you know, like, set traps or whatever. I think that's a really good, um, a really good idea to kind of, um, keep in mind. Um, particularly if you have a character who's, like, in their lair. Um. Yeah. Right? Because, like, if you're that bad guy, like, if you're in your lair, you've probably set up a number of traps for, to, like, stop the, the enemies from getting close to you. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think one of the most infamous, uh, traps that I've ever heard of secondhand from somebody else was uh, a wizard who had um, done a polymorph spell on a herd of cattle and turned each of the cattle into bricks that they then used to mortar their ceiling. And so what they did is when the players came in, they threw a high-level dispel magic at the ceiling, which then caused a herd of cattle to drop onto the players. Jeez. (sighs) So... That's extreme. I heard cattle kill people. 
I mean, cows do kill more people than sharks every year. Um, (laughs) Too much cow tipping. Just usually not all in one room. (laughs) So, um, so like you can think of different ways that the that your your boss monster will do that because like you know you said like summoning minions and such. Action economy is your friend (laughs) when you are the dungeon master, and you need to be very mindful about how your character's action economy stacks up against the party as a whole. Right. Um, Absolutely. Eh. Um, because if if they have six attacks in a round, let's say it's just a party of fighters with multiple two attacks each, mm. and you have one, they're eventually just going to overpower you. They're going to out-action you, and there's nothing you can do about it. Right. Uh, so adding even even just like half CR goblins just like six of those can really make the combat feel more back and forth right right yeah and having more, them come more targets in, that the players need to fight and having them come in unexpectedly can really throw the players for a loop yeah um like the cows from the ceiling <laughs> like the cows from the ceiling um like thinking back to to it cuz like basically the idea of action economy is that your players have X number of things that they can do in a single round, and your enemies have a thing that they can do in a round. And the players, by default, tend to have more things they can do in a round than most, like, monsters that you can make. And so that's why, like, in 5th edition, they incorporated the idea of, like, lair actions and legendary actions to help balance out that aspect. Because trying to do that, like, big boss monster in 3.5 was basically impossible. They just get mobbed. Um... And so you would run into situations where even higher level enemies were not all that threatening because the players would just very quickly, you know, make six or seven attacks compared to their one or, or three a turn, um, basically. But one thing that I do want to mention with the low level enemies is that keep in mind that you don't always have to play the low level enemies exactly as they're represented in the book. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe it's not that, you know, the goblins individually are all that dangerous, but if five of them try and attack one player, well, you could just resolve that as a single group attack where maybe all five of these goblins use their attack action and collectively they were able to score a single hit that dealt a D10. Wild. Um, Wild. So that can help out in a number of ways. One, it helps keep lower level enemies relevant to higher level uh, player characters. Where like they might feel confident that their twenty, you know, that their thirteenth level character with twenty one AC can't be hurt by a goblin anymore. But if seven of them line up a crossbow shot and fire at him, one of them's gonna find home. And you can represent that by saying, you know, these goblins all fired and one of them did hit. Um mm-hmm. it also helps clean up your job as DM, because one downside of having a lot of minions is that there's a lot of stuff for you to manage. So if you start to to resolve groups of enemies at the same time. It it reduces the amount of time that you spend kind of playing with yourself and gives the players like keeps the combat rolling, which is really important. Right. Try not to play with yourself at the table. Yeah. <laughs> Only psychopaths and like hobos on the train do that. Um so so what you can do is you can do it that way. Um the other idea that you can do is maybe the enemy's, like, stat block is just a little bit fuzzier than, like, the hard stats. So I remember I ran a encounter on an elevator uh, during a Star Wars campaign that I ran, and it was a bunch of... It was, like, hundreds of, like, tiny enemies. 
Like, I think they had, like, a single HP, and they dealt, like, a D4 of damage each. And that was it. Like, I didn't have any other stat block to them. They didn't have any saves to speak of. They didn't even have an attack roll. I was just rolling a D4, and that was how much damage they did. Um, and, uh, you know, I think Marvin would agree. That was actually a really memorable encounter, because, like, it really gave the the feeling that, like, we're being swarmed by thousands of enemies, and this is, like, a fight for survival. So you can really kind of um, do a lot with that as well. I, I see. hated that encounter. <laughs> <laughs> it was cool, What though. happened? <laughs> oh, I mean, like, in the long run, it ended fine. I, I used Force Lightning so much in that fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, like, it was just unending. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It was chaos. Um, like, I think that that was probably the closest I'll ever come to representing, like, the Flood from Halo in a, in a tabletop setting. Because <laughs> um, that's what it felt yeah, like. that's fair. That's super fair. And that, yeah, I've played in a Star Wars campaign. I've always wanted to DM one, too. Those are always fun. They are. Um, I think Saga's edition in particular is a little unbalanced, so you have to work a little bit to, to get it to to get certain things to, like, feel dangerous, which is why, like, in that case, like, the way that Sagas is set up, basically low-level enemies can never injure um, high-level characters. So that's why I just skipped the whole thing entirely, and I just ended up dealing set damage, because, honestly, I can't can't do it otherwise. Um, Because in that system, your character level factors directly into your armor class, basically. Oh, wow. Um, Like, directly. Like, one of the factors for calculating your reflex defense which is the uh equivalent of ac is your level it's like your level plus 10 plus your like modifier to it like it's a lot of stuff jeez Um, 10 plus level plus dex plus class bonus because every every class had a different bonus to different defenses and then Um, plus like extra stuff um yeah and then miscellaneous mods so, like, high-level characters could have an AC that was, like, easily in the 30s. What the hell? But, like, what that means uh, is that low-level enemies are just physically incapable of hitting them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... I think in that campaign, I was level 12 at the end of it, and my AC was, like, 29. Yeah, that sounds about right. Wow. Um, one thing I did want to talk about, though, which is something I don't think gets brought up all that that frequently, is um, the idea of, like, the tone of your game. And I see. thinking about how the things that you do in the game make the players feel. Because that can go a really long way towards, like, making a memorable experience. So I ran a campaign that was set up to be a horror campaign. And I, I like using horror elements in my campaigns in general. Um, just because I think that like, I personally like them. I think they do really interesting things. But um, you can sometimes tap into the player's emotions about a thing, which can cause them to feel a certain way. So I had a campaign that I was running with um, Marvin, Julian, Alan, and Sean. And they were basically being, you know, it was basically like kind of the, the uh, rough version of the plot from It Follows. But they were being pursued by this relentless creature that they could virtually not interact with. And... I think that it, I did a really good job. I'm patting myself on the back here, so Marvin can disagree if he, if he didn't think so. But mm-hmm. I like to think that I did a good job in making that enemy feel truly menacing 
to the point where the character's only real recourse was to flee for their lives. <laughs> um, oh my. So, I wish we had been able to finish that campaign. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately I moved before I was able to, to see it to completion. But um, but you can really kind of... Oh, uh, thanks, uh, Bunny. He subscribed to my channel. Um, nice. So, um, so yeah, anyways, I think that like thinking about the way that your characters are going to feel during a given moment can go a really long way towards... Um, towards like some of the actions that you do and how that like you know kind of what you want to do in order to help elicit particular emotions um i'm kind of right. rambling a little bit but i think I, I, I think maybe i can describe it better with like an example no i appreciate it what you're saying it it makes sense yeah um so like in the horror campaign i wanted to convey that this creature like was just like alien on a completely different level to the point where like it was actively dangerous. And so I had to just deal damage and experience points. <laughs> oh. Um like I if it was yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> Which is not something I normally do, but I tell you what, you tell a character that he takes 35 points of experience <laughs> one time and suddenly they, they want nothing to do with that creature ever again. <laughs> Yep. Oh my god. <laughs> I think we were only like level 3 or 4 too. I think we were level 4. Yeah. And like cuz cuz my character was multi-class and I just lost my first level of wizard. Oh he my was just god. Gone. Wait, so Owen, if they became level 0 would they die? Yes. Oh That's my. What happens in 3.5? Oh, if you have God. no levels as a heroic character, you just die. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Flink says that awesome. sounds like a phenomenal threat. It really was. Um It was it was really it was really tough to deal with. And we couldn't like deal damage to it. Oh yeah. so you just had to no run. means of damage. We literally couldn't fight this thing. And nobody else could see it except for us. Yeah. Jeez. And it also was dressed exactly like the police. <laughs> Yep. Oh god. Which like is maybe a little bit on the nose in 2021. Um but <laughs> oh but I, will, but I will say that um that because of that it made it made it really tense where it's like whenever they would enter, you know, whenever they're in town, I would describe like okay, and you see, you know, two people dressed in a green cloak with their hood up, you know, over in the corner there and it's like all right, like are they police? It's like you see one get up and start walking towards you. It's just like oh shit, like I don't want to I don't want, I'm not even going to stay, I'm just going to run. And it's like, alright, like, but now the I'm guard out. is chasing you, because the guard sees you fleeing from him for some reason. Um, <laughs> and then uh, the worst part was, that was actually a guard, and then, like, somebody else walked up wearing a green cloak, and it was the thing. I was like, this is <laughs> bullshit. Um, and then the thing killed the guard! <laughs> yeah. Um, that's awesome. But now we're running away from a dead guard. <laughs> it just got progressively worse um, for, for the party, I'd say. And I think that one reason I like that that campaign hook in general was that the hook felt like it was created specifically because the players' characters were who they were. Um, in that, basically, it was a curse that was associated with a with an evil tome that they found. And Marvin's character was a bibliophile, so there was no way that he was never going to open that book. Um, True story. 
<laughs> so, so basically, when they got contracted to go find this rare relic in his in his dungeon or whatever, they went to the dungeon, found the relic relatively easily, came back out, and it's like, all right, like it's this book, you know, what do you do? It's like, well, I'm gonna crack it open, and it's like, all right, you read through it, and then the ink disappears, and then like the pages are all blank now. It's just like, <laughs> oh god, don't GG. like that. <laughs> don't like that. <laughs> And I really that, didn't like it. That so. makes me start to kind of think of uh, making like a Cthulhu-inspired campaign. That kind of horror vibe, you know? That could be fun. Yeah. As long as your players are kind of okay with it. Now, one thing in that right. case is right. I specifically zigged because up until that point, they were playing just your traditional D&D, you know, go to the town, save the town get the reward, oh. go to the next thing. I think we were, like, maybe five games in or something when that initial, when that thing happened. Something like that, yeah. Um, <laughs> it was it was just a normal, like, sword and board, high fantasy, dungeon crawler game, and then all of a sudden, it's following me. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, suddenly you realize that you're in Deary, Maine. <laughs> um... <laughs> So, uh, Bunny says the best horror campaigns are the ones the players don't realize that they're in horror campaigns. And also, Flink said that Call of Cthulhu has some great modules. That's oh true. my gosh. I'll Both look into it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like, if you're if you think your players will be receptive to it, sometimes you can really kind of um, throw them throw them off and show them like oh no things are things are not under control we are not the heroes anymore we are we are the victims we are we are <laughs> striving to be final girl in a horror movie and things are going poorly um, oh no but when you set up an enemy like that you also should consider that you do want the players to get a win eventually and so either <laughs> you want this threat to be something that they can manage but not make a joke um or you, you kind of lay some breadcrumbs for how they can look into it. Um, uh, so, like, in this case, I had, like, a general plot thread. It, this is how I generally plan my campaigns anyways, is I keep, like, a general plot idea in mind, where it's, like, I kind of know where I want the story to end, and I kind of nudge the things that happen around those characters towards that direction, um, while kind of giving them as much freedom as I can. I see. So in this case, I, I had an idea of what these, this thing was um, in this particular instance, and so I knew how to resolve the problem. Um, and so I was looking for opportunities to kind of work into the story. Okay, this is, you know, this is a clue you can follow while they're still also trying to deal with this problem. Um, an instance where I did not plan very well, um, or maybe not didn't plan very well, but an instance where I ran an enemy that became a recurring thing that I didn't, that wasn't executed very well ultimately, was um, I had a lich in my first campaign that I ever ran where um, his phylactery was an amulet, and the players needed the amulet intact in order to conduct a ritual to, like, stop the the petrification that was going to take over the world, right? Like, the whole world was getting petrified very slowly, so they needed it. Um, they needed the amulet in order to, to for the ritual. So they had to steal a lich's phylactery, which just sounds like all sorts of a bad time. Um, and they did. But the problem is that the lich isn't going to just let them have the phylactery. So now they have this recurring threat of a lich that is coming after them to get their thing back. 
um, that they they can't kill. They they can't kill it forever. <laughs> um, so it was interesting the first time, and the second time that it shows up, and you know, my I have people joking in chat. A couple of the players who were there, it became like a running joke where it's like every time they looked into a dark alley, like you know, you see a figure in there. Like it's the lich, like you know, quick. Um, Horrifying. Yeah. Right. Um, and like a couple times they did get ambushed. Like they went into an inn, and it's like everyone's just chilling or whatever. And Will was playing a barbarian in this campaign, and um, uh-huh. and they're just chilling at an inn. And suddenly, Will's barbarian catches a crossbow arrow in the neck because he was sitting near the window. And, like, zombies are now storming the building. So, like, quick, you know, like, get the table, put it up against the door. Like, we need to barricade ourselves in. Um, But then towards the end of that campaign, like, it was just a joke. Because the Lich didn't really have their spellbook anymore. It had been destroyed. The backup had been destroyed. And so, you know, I... At that time, I was no longer DMing that campaign. But I think that it became more of a running joke for the party than, like, a, a credible threat. Which is what it was initially intended to be. Um, so being mindful on that is, is helpful, but also it's an amusing anecdote. Right. I mean, all these ideas, I feel, I feel overload, but like good overload. (laughs) Like (laughs) my mind is like racing, like what, what to write next, you know, like what campaign to work on. So (laughs) good info. (laughs) Uh, I I did kind of run out of questions, but... (laughs) No, it's cool. Uh, Nick and Chad appreciate that, the um, talking. Facts. Um, no, we really appreciate you coming on, man. We, we really do appreciate mm-hmm. it. Um, More than you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Nick and Chad, by the way, said the Big Bad eventually became Team Rocket. And I think that Team Rocket syndrome is exactly <laughs> that. Because like, Team Rocket was a threat in the first like two episodes of Pokemon. And then they were a and joke. And blasted off for a third time. <laughs> they were a joke until like season seventeen or something. Like there was the one season where they came back and they like actually kidnapped Pikachu or whatever. And then they were a joke after that too. Um, I want to say it was like, I think it was like the something. end of Black and White. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that sounds I wanna right. Say it, I want to say that was it. Yeah. So like, don't Poor make Team Rocket. Don't make Team Rocket. Basically, like, you mm-hmm. know, make them a threat, but like keep it credible. Um, though if you want to make Team Rocket, go in knowing that they're going to be Team Rocket. Yeah, for sure. Right. Um. So yeah, man. Uh, hopefully that, that helped out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, no, I definitely, <laughs> and I know I can always reach out to you guys too. I'm not yeah. leaving or anything, but I'm just yeah. saying. <laughs> no, absolutely. I, I appreciate and... your help. You're both well, of you you're guys. in the Discord now, so if you have any questions, you know where to find us. Both I of us at trapped. the same time, even. I am trapped forever. <laughs> I uh, wouldn't go that far. Yeah, not quite. <laughs> you can sell a third of your soul to get out. <laughs> God damn it. Um, <laughs> what I will say, though, is that, like, you know, just later on, if you do need help with, like, Roll20 or something, I can help out with that. Um, maybe I'll yeah, put together, like, good. a tutorial or something and put it on YouTube one day. But, one day we should play together. Yeah, I could definitely see, like, a one-shot. Um... For sure. So you um, could get Alvis in there because he's saying he wants to play a one shot. He's been uh, missing D anD D. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, maybe we can talk offline for that. <laughs> um, sure. Yeah, but I think that that's um, like that's just how it happens though. Sometimes, right? Where it's just yeah. like you um, you you just talk to people and like suddenly you find out that they're interested and 
before you know it, you're running a group. Like, I think that you've taken a really good first step in deciding, like, hey, I'm okay DMing, mm -hmm. so why don't I start, like, laying down that foundation? Right, um, yeah. One thing that you didn't ask that I did want to talk about a little bit, though, and kind of get your guys' opinion on it, is um, for new DMs, um, Marvin and John, you can feel free to jump in as well. Do you think that it's easier to run a module or to, like, start with, like, a like a zoomed-in version of a homebrew? Um, I think it depends on the DM, honestly. Uh, because I didn't run a module until, like, 2012. And I've been playing since, like, 2006. Mm -hmm. um, and being able to make my own world and my own decisions really helped me because I was kind of using D&D as a creative outlet from the beginning, starting as a player, um, just getting more of myself into the game from the start instead of working off somebody else's backbone really helped me. Mm -hmm. But I know some people who have literally said that they could not have done a homebrew campaign for their first session. So I think that depends on the on the DM. I think I'm that type of player that you just said, where, like, for my first session, it was definitely hard for me to come up with all the ideas mm -hmm. that I wanted to do that session. So I did kind of pick a little bit from, like, different modules I was exploring but I kind of mishmashed it into an idea from taking a, a little pieces of each, you know? And um, that's actually something that uh, I've never heard anybody say, that they've, they've run multiple modules and taken the parts they like from lots of them for their first ever session. That's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. yeah, I hadn't heard that before. <laughs> but it, I just... I, I had liked so many ideas at the time that I was like, I kind of want to like incorporate a couple of these, and I can't remember them at the moment because it was a long time ago. <laughs> but I if I really do, like I'll let you know. Though. Yeah, yeah. So I just kind of took a bunch, and it worked out. It it was good, and then from then on, I think I just went homebrew. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe if the if the module had like a storyline or something like a mini side quest or something like that, I would kind of keep it and run run with it for a while, but. Mm -hmm. um yeah yeah that's uh, really one thing i will say is that the the more i have run the more i like to incorporate um modules into my homebrew campaigns um for example i have started off completely off the cuff uh totally improvised brand new world and uh, maybe 10 sessions in after the players are getting used to their, their characters, I switched it to um, Court of the Dragon Queen. Mm. Just 10 sessions in, all of a sudden, we're in a module. Nice. Um, and cool. I, think, I think being able to incorporate modules when you get more used to running games is a is a really good skill to to acquire i guess yeah, yeah. it's kind of like looking for a jumping off point and i'll admit like mm -hmm. i've never i've never actually run a module at all mm -hmm. um so like 
even the idea of like grab like purchasing a book and like running something out of there i find kind of like it always seems kind of weird to me because it wasn't the way that i ever played in fact actually like growing like growing up and playing the game i didn't even know that modules were a thing for a number of years into the game <laughs> oh same um like I, I just i always ran homebrew and that was just how i did it um as i've like more recently though i've started to kind of look into different modules and i do think that they're really helpful for kind of pulling ideas um mm -hmm. even if you don't run the module exactly as it is so like the dungeon that i have right now i pulled a lot of um a lot of uh stuff from that dungeon regarding the like core layout from something like um like the tomb of annihilation right um obviously i've i've changed it a number of ways but like some of the core layout of the dungeon i kind of lifted because it can be really daunting to design a huge dungeon from scratch so sometimes yeah. that's the best way to do it um so uh let's see uh bastion here says uh in all honesty system is system if it's interesting and it works why not use it and if you can implement it in an interesting way um and yeah exactly you know if it's interesting yeah. and it works out if you can do it why not exactly that's kind of exactly what i was trying to say <laughs> yeah just stealing our thunder um <laughs> so, <laughs> um so yeah i think that that modules can be a really good starting place particularly if you you're overwhelmed by the idea of like doing a homebrew campaign um one thing i do want to touch on though is that if you're, you know, a new DM, you don't need to design the entire world. You really only need to design a very small area. Like, I think that it's really helpful to work on the small area and kind of build out from there, as that kind of follows the natural progression of the player characters anyways, mm -hmm. and basically right. fill in stuff as it comes up. Um, so, like, for instance, if the player you know, says, like, oh, well, I want to be a dwarf, where are the dwarfs from in your world? I don't know. Uh, let's figure it out <laughs> together right um <laughs> right <laughs> like i i had a cleric join the campaign hey do you ha what what deities do you have that are of the war domain uh i don't know <laughs> shrug <laughs> I, um uh, <laughs> exactly right um so you can so you with that like kind of during that session zero and even beyond you can kind of collaboratively build that world out so that way it's you know richer and more interesting than anything that you might have built um, on your own. Uh, praise shrug. So, mm -hmm. um, um, and and I really like that that method of world building, um, and I'm actually using it myself uh, in the campaign that I'm running, the Pathfinder game that I'm running. Mm -hmm. uh, Alan is playing a. I want to say he's human. Maybe he's a half elf. Either way, he's a full size humanoid. It's probably uh, but a he half was raised elf. by half but he was raised by halflings. Mm. And he was like, Well where can I be from? I don't know. Where do you want to be from? What do you want to name this place? We can name it whatever you want. And uh, <laughs> he he called it O'Reilly Shown. So now <laughs> the halflings in my world are Irish. That's, Deal. Like, that's awesome. Deal. Hey, it works. Um, I love it. They have yet to find a halfling because they're rare in this world, but they're out there. And they'll be <laughs> Irish. 
similarly, um, I had a situation where my my cleric was a half elf that he wanted to be raised by dwarves. Guess who made a whole dwarven civilization, complete with underground you know monastery to war gods, um, just in the backstory. So, you know, it's okay to to kind of riff on that, and I think you should also encourage the players to mix stuff up to a certain extent as well. Um, like I had a situation come up where my my fighter had taken a level of sorcerer, and it's wild magic sorcery, so it's just, you know, nonsense, complete and utter nonsense all the time. But he talked to the bard, who was the major spellcaster in the party, uh, who used arcane magic, and it's like, well, what was your first time like casting magic? Was it anything like this? I promise you that that first time player who was playing that bard had no frame of reference for how to answer that, but they made something up on the spot, and it sounded really good. <laughs> so, um, so like, don't feel pressured to like have answers to everything all the time. Sometimes you can just kind of make it up. And sometimes you can let the players make it up for you. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, can't tell you how many times I've changed my plot because something the player said sounded better. <laughs> oh my gosh! True story. Not kidding. Sometimes, it, sometimes the players make it harder for themselves, and they don't even know. Um. I hope it's mostly me. I'm trying to make it hard for us on purpose. <laughs> um, the other thing, too, is, like, sometimes the players think of something, like, sometimes they think of a solution to something that you've set up that you did not necessarily intend or, you know, really catch the implication of, but it sounds good. Just go with it. Just let the player feel like they're smart. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, okay. So, like, a good for instance, and, like, the other thing, too, that I do as a DM is I always present questions without necessarily knowing how I'm going to answer them later on. That can be kind of a haphazard way of telling a story, but when you do it right, it feels real good because the player feels like you just, like, presented them with, like, you know, filet mignon with, like, fagua and, you know, just <laughs> beautiful food, right? Um, even though you were just literally, like, throwing it together as it was happening. And so sometimes you can, you really kind of set yourself up with really interesting ideas by kind of presenting the players with imperfect information and waiting for them to start to fill in some of the gaps for you. Building off each other's ideas. <laughs> Flink said mm -hmm. the analogy died fast. Yeah, yeah, it did. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Look, man, I, I can't, I can't, I can't hit it a hundred percent every single time right like i think the, i think if you could get anything from the, that the previous uh short story it's that i am capable of presenting only half-baked ideas at a time and that it takes me time to correct them so you relying on yours? me um <laughs> batting below 300 at that point um maybe. i love how i'm just getting ragged in my own chat um so um, but yeah, you can really like kind of use elements and set things up without actually having a solution. Um, and that's kind of one of the reasons why like I actually like the trinkets in three point in um fifth edition rather, because like they can be really good just like plot hooks. True, I agree. So, so yeah, that's the thing. Um, so we just had two hours, gentlemen. Oh wow! I didn't even realize the time. I'm not even joking. <laughs> so, um, jeez. So I know uh, previously we had run it for about two hours. So I guess we'll we'll kind of call it here. Um, so uh, 
unless you guys had any closing thoughts you wanted to to throw at us. I had a lot of fun. I I learned a lot, and I'm glad you guys are my friends. I I hope to play in the future. <laughs> I'll I'll keep you updated on any future campaigns I do, and let you know how I'm doing if you're curious. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Maybe we can do like a uh, like a catch up meeting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if you if you run it, you can tell us kind of how it's been going. Because um, there's good. one thing that D and D players love to do: it's talk about their campaigns. Um, <laughs> look um, here we are yeah literally right um so yeah so with that you know thank you so much john for joining um for those of you who are watching in chat of course uh, you can join our discord um i'll uh, post a link in the description if you're on youtube um or i guess in the show notes if you're listening to this uh but yeah so uh thank you so much for joining uh our third episode of uh talking as a reaction uh, we will reconvene next Thursday uh, at 9 o'clock with uh, Marvin and myself and potentially a new guest. Um, if you're interested in, in guesting onto the show, just uh, reach out to either of us. Um, Marvin, if you want to share your socials. Uh, you can find me at twitch.tv forward slash Tayogetsu. And uh, for those of you in my chat, uh, you can also reach out to Owen. Owen, if you would like to... Uh, Yep. Plug yourself. Yeah, uh, you can reach out to me on uh, at I'm at twitch.tv forward slash Vladviver. That's a V L A D D V I E V E R, um, and also on Twitter at Vladviver, uh, same spelling. So, um, so uh, you, you can also find there. me on Twitter and Instagram with the same handle. Tayo gets you. John, do you have anything follow. you want to plug? <laughs> follow them. Follow them. No plugs. Just follow Marvin and Owen. <laughs> 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 appreciate it Pam. yeah for sure um so yeah and then also we have the discord link so um so i'll post that in my chat i suppose um for and good i measure. will also post it in mine um so yeah you can join on the discord if you are interested in guesting in uh one of the weeks just reach out to us and we'll definitely uh work it out and uh other than that uh thank you so much for watching and uh i hope you guys have a fantastic uh weekend Thanks for coming, everybody.